I love how each of those pictures sort of shines a different light on a different facet of grace. It's always inspiring to me. I love talking about this topic. I'm so glad to be uh, with you today. Uh, I'm actually glad to be anywhere after what happened to me in Little Rock, Arkansas. I I was down in Little Rock and I was going to speak at a charity event and a pastor picked me up from the airport and he's driving me to the event and we're talking and he says, you know, I I told a young woman in our church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight. And she said, oh, the guy who wrote The Case for Christ, is he still living? (laughs) So I'm glad to be anywhere. Um, but especially here at Parkview. It's one of my favorite places, such a great church. And Tim and Denise are such wonderful, wonderful people. And the staff and the volunteers are such a joy to be with. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here to talk about this topic of grace and to start this series called The Case for Grace. It reminds me of a story that uh, they tell about C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian philosopher and author, who um, one day was at Oxford University many years ago, and he walked into a room, and he found a bunch of theologians and philosophers who were arguing and debating and discussing something. And he said, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, well, we're trying to figure out what is really unique about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace. Grace is unique to Christianity. There is no other world religion that is you know, based on a theology of grace. Every other world religion is about trying to do stuff to earn your way to God. Christianity is about grace, this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. It is the centerpiece of Christianity. In fact, Titus 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. That is how significant it is. It is a grace of God through which the salvation of people comes. So how can we define grace? What is grace? Well, you can, you know, look up in the dictionary. You can read academic articles about it. You can boil it down, though, to just nine words. Just nine words. Grace is the favor shown by God to sinners. That's, that's basically what grace is. Now, we can elaborate that on that. We could say grace is this free gift unearned, unmerited, undeserved, this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as our substitute to pay for all of our sins and which he offers freely to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. That's a little more elaborate definition, but it's interesting when Jesus wanted to talk about grace, he didn't write an academic treatise. He didn't give some big formal definition with footnotes and everything. Instead, in Luke chapter 15, what he does is he tells a story. He tells the story of the prodigal son. And I think stories can um, illustrate grace for us in ways that mere mere definitions cannot. That's why for my new book, The Case for Grace, that we're kind of basing a series on, uh, I traveled almost 20,000 miles to sit down with people whose lives intersected with God and and the grace of God radically transformed them in ways that are so mind-boggling that you can only attribute it to the work of God. Each story shines a light on a different facet of grace. And so I was thinking, in light of all that, if someone were to ask me about the God of grace, tell me about the God of grace, what do I need to know about the God of grace? I think I would tell them a couple of stories. The first story I would tell them is about an orphan. And the lesson of the story is quite simple. 
It is that God loves you and he wants to adopt you as a son or as a daughter. This is a story about a woman in Korea, a young woman who got pregnant during an affair during the Korean War. Uh, she had an affair with an American soldier. He went back to the United States after the war and left her alone to have the baby. It was a biracial child. Of course, uh, in that, those, that era, it was a very um, big stigma to be from an unwed relationship and especially to bi be biracial. Uh, her, little, her hair was curlier than the other kids. It was lighter in color than the other kids. Her eyes were a little different. And so that really set her apart. And in that culture... Uh, people would attack others and they would stigmatize them and they would ostracize them if they were biracial. Uh, in fact, the, the, the stigma was so horrible that many mothers actually killed their children rather than have them face this horrible um, being ostracized in that way. But this woman didn't want to do that. She loved her little girl and she did her best to raise her. And so despite the pressures against her, she raised her to the age of four. But then at that point, an opportunity arose for her to get married to a Korean man. But that man didn't want the child to be part of the marriage. And so in a series of circumstances, the bottom line was this little four-year-old girl found herself abandoned on the streets of Korea. Now, I don't know if you've got a four-year-old kid or ever had a four-year-old kid or a brother or sister who's four or a grandchild. I have a four-year-old grandchild. And, and you think of this. This is inconceivable to me. To have a child at the tender age of four to be um, cast adrift on the streets of not just any city and any community, but a community that was predisposed to hate her and to hurt her. And this little girl found that she wasn't alone. There were packs of these children who were living on the streets after the war. And they would live in caves and they would live in abandoned buildings and they would live under bridges and they would eat whatever they could find. They would catch mice and just eat the whole thing, the skin and the fur and the tails. They would catch locusts and, and let them dry, kill them and let them dry in the sun and then eat the locusts. Uh, they would crawl into farmer's fields at night and steal the melons. Of course, the farmers would chase them and try to kill them. And this little girl was especially um, at risk because of her biracial nature. And the Korean people would taunt her with the ugliest word in the Korean language, a word that maybe even more uh, um, ugly than the N-word in our culture. It was the word tuki. And that word mean, meant alien devil. But, but it was more than that. It was an ugly, awful thing to say to another human being. And they would taunt her and she would be abused by people who felt free to abuse her because she really wasn't a person. And so it didn't take long for this little girl, in light of the way she was being treated, to draw some conclusions about herself. This is what she said years later. She said, when you hear what you are when you're a little child day after day, you begin to believe it about yourself. She said, I wanted... Uh, she said, I believed anyone could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. She couldn't remember the name that her mother had given her. She said, I had no name. I had no family. I had no future. And I hated myself. 
So if you can fathom the fact that for two to three years she lived on the streets of Korea. And then a cholera epidemic hit and she became very, very ill. And she crawled up on a, a, a pile of trash to die. Well, along came a nurse from World Vision. She was from Sweden. She was a volunteer who had come. They had started a new orphanage there in Korea. And her job as a nurse was to go around the city and find babies that they could bring to the orphanage. Not the older kids. There was no hope for the older kids. They had too many scars from the emotional abuse they had suffered and physical abuse and the the medical issues. And so the, the older kids would never be adopted. But the little babies, maybe someone would adopt them. They had fewer issues and had less abuse and, and um, you know, kind of a more of a fresh slate. And so she, her job was to go gather up as many babies as she could. So she comes along, she sees this little girl dying on this uh, heap of trash. And her heart goes out to her, but she realizes there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do for her. So she begins to walk away. And she said later, as she walked away, it was like her legs became incredibly heavy. And then she heard a voice in her native Swedish language. And the voice said, she's mine. And so this woman turns and, was that God? So she she picks up the little child and she brings her to the orphanage to live. Now, the orphanage sounds like a well-organized, nice place, and and it was good people who were trying to do good stuff, but they had very few resources. It was very primitive. The children slept in the dirt or on a mat on the ground. There was very little medical help, um, but, but at least it was a place to live. And so this little girl lived there for a couple of years. And then one day word came that a couple from America was going to come and adopt a baby boy. And so it was great excitement among the kids at the orphanage because it meant, you know, a baby might have a future, might have a hope, might, get, might have a family. And so this job of this little girl, since she was the oldest child at the orphanage, was to clean up the baby boys so that they would be presentable to this couple who was going to adopt them. So she gave them baths and she put them in the best rags that they had and she combed their hair and pinched their cheeks and tried to make them presentable. And then the next day this couple came. And I'll read you the words of the girl. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. She said, I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. And then, she said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now listen to her description of herself. See if you can picture in your mind's eye what she looked like. She said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Although I was almost nine years old by then and had been in the orphanage for two years, I still had dirt on my body. It was ground into my skin. I had lice so bad that my head was actually white. I had worms so bad in my stomach that when they got hungry, they would crawl out of my throat. I had a lazy eye from malnutrition that sort of flopped around in its socket. I weighed less than 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had boils all over me and and scars on my face. And yet, she said, still, he came over to where I was. 
And he got down as low as he could, right there in his haunches, and he looked me straight in the eyes. And he stretched out that enormous hand of his, and he laid it on the side of my face. And it felt so good. And it felt so right. What was, what was he saying by that gesture? He was saying, this is the girl who I want to adopt. And when she was telling me her story, my mind froze on that image because I thought, this is a picture of what the God of grace is like. The God of grace peers beneath the ugliness of our sin. He peers beneath the scars of our failure. And what does he see? He sees a soul made in the image of God. Because God does not see you in the same way that you see yourself. He sees you differently. He sees you through heaven's eyes. Phil McHugh wrote a song several years ago called In Heaven's Eyes. And the refrain says, in heaven's eyes, there are no losers. In heaven's eyes, no hopeless cause. Only people like you with feelings like me. Amazed by the grace we can find in heaven's eyes. And because of God's grace, he wants to adopt you as a son or as a daughter. I mean, you may think if people knew the real me, if they knew my secret fantasies, if they knew my clandestine transgressions, yeah, I would be as big of an outcast as that Korean girl. But you know what? God sees all of that. And he still loves you. And he still wants to adopt you. And if you ask me to tell you about the God of grace, that is the first thing I would want you to know. And then something incredible happened. Something mind-boggling happened at that moment as this man was laying his hand on this, on this child's face and expressing love to her. And, and she said later, she said, the hand on my face felt so good. And inside I was saying, oh, keep it up. Don't let your hand go. But she said, nobody had ever shown that kind of affection for me before. And I didn't know how to respond. So, so get this. She said, I yanked his hand off my face and I looked him in the eye and I spit on him. Twice, she said, I spit on him and then I ran away and I hid in the closet. Can you imagine? Of all things to do, she spits on this man. This window of opportunity was opening up for her to have maybe a future and a hope and a family. And what does she do? She slams it shut. And my first reaction when she told me this was, you got to be kidding me. And then I thought, wait a minute. How many times have I done that to God in my life? I don't know if you've ever done it. I don't know if you've had a time in your life where you, where you felt particularly sensitive toward God, where you felt pulled toward God, where you felt attracted toward God, where a spiritual window of opportunity was opening up. Maybe you were you know, a kid in Sunday school and your teacher was talking about the love of God and, and, and in your pure heart of being a little kid, it, it sounded so good and so right, but then you got distracted and there was school and other kids and, and, and you didn't slam the window shut, but that, you just let that window of spiritual opportunity slide shut. Or maybe you went through a crisis, medical crisis, family crisis, and, 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 and in the midst of it, you called out to God, God, I need you right now. And you felt him undergirding you in the midst of the crisis. You felt him helping you in that moment of crisis. And you made promises to him. 
But then the crisis passed and life went back to normal and the window of opportunity just slowly slid shut. Or maybe you come here to Parkview and, and, and you, you, you participate in the worship time and yeah, you're a follower of Christ, but there's something in your life that you're holding back on, that you're resisting. And, you, and, and in the worship time, something tells you, no, 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 God is for me. God wants me to take this step of faith, whatever it is. He's cheering me on. But then you go out and you have brunch and then work the next day and, th- and that window of opportunity just slide shut or you go on a vacation to the Rocky Mountains and 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 they're so beautiful and so majestic the scenery is just breathtaking and in that moment you sense that the, the God of the, cre- the the creator of the universe calling to you you sense his still small voice in the wind and you and you feel attracted toward the one who is so creative and magnificent he created this beautiful scenery and the window of opportunity is open but then The vacation ends and you go back to work and you get tied up with stuff and the window just slowly slides shut. Have you ever done that? Man, I did it. So many times when I was an atheist, when I I felt attracted toward God, so many times I slammed the window shut or just out of apathy, I just let it slip shut. Well, let me tell you something about the God of grace. He is a lot like that man and that woman at the orphanage. You know, nobody would have blamed them. Nobody would have given it a second thought if they said, okay, well, you know what? Let's go back to our original plan of adopting a little baby. A little baby without the emotional baggage, without the uh, sexual abuse, without the um, uh, medical issues. Nobody would have said anything negative about them if they changed their mind and adopted a baby boy. But you know what? They came back the next day And they said, you know that little girl? Oh, the one that spit on you? Yeah. That's the one we want to adopt. And they took her by the hand. And they took her home. And they loved that little girl. And they named her Stephanie. And they got her the medical help that she needed. And seeing the grace of God reflected in the lives of that Christian couple, that attracted little Stephanie toward Jesus. And he, she received the grace of God at a young age. And she grew in her faith. She lived not far from here, grew up in Indiana. And uh, her dad was a pastor. And uh, she, God just did a remarkable work in her life. She became, she was homecoming queen at her high school. Now, you know what? She lives out in the Pacific Northwest. Married to a missionary, former missionary. And her ministry is to young girls, many of whom don't have fathers or they have abusive fathers. And they've been told they don't have a future and they don't have a hope. And she tells them, no, 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 that is not true. Let me tell you about the God of grace. Let me tell you about how I was adopted and how that's kind of a picture of what the God of grace wants to do with you. And she helps so many young kids up there in the state of Oregon. Friends, if you asked me about the God of grace, I would want to tell you about adoption. The Bible uses the imagery of adoption. In Romans 8, verse 23, it says, we wait eagerly for our adoption by God. We eagerly await our adoption. One of the great theologians, J.I. Packer, said this, 
Of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest. To be right with God the judge, that's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, that is greater still. That is greater still. Friends, here's the truth. If there's ever been a time in your life where you've let that window of opportunity shut and you've walked the other way from God, what you need to know today is God has never walked away from you. He's never turned his back on you. He's still there. He still wants to love you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to adopt you. And that's what I want you to know. And then I tell you a second story that shines a light on a different aspect of the grace of God. It's a story about a guy by the name of Billy Moore. And the lesson of his life is simple as well. It's that God wants to transform you and he wants to make your life count. Billy grew up poor in the South, in Georgia. Got into some petty crimes when he was growing up, burglaries, things like that. Kind of a wayward kid. He joined the army to try to straighten his life out. That didn't help very much. Then one day he was in his trailer and a friend was there and Billy was getting drunk. And the friend was listening to Billy talk about how he had no money and he needed money and he always broke. And his friend said, you know, Billy, there is a guy, he's an old guy, he's a grandfather, frail kind of a guy, lives in another trailer not far from here. He doesn't believe in banks and he keeps his money under his mattress. Billy said, really? So Billy got a gun and he went over to that trailer and he broke in and this man confronted him and Billy shot him dead. And then he stole $5,600 and he fled. Well, it didn't take long for the police to track Billy down and they came and broke down the door of his trailer and they took him away in handcuffs. And that first night, sitting in a cell, all by himself, the magnitude of what he had done hit Billy Moore and he realized My life is over. I have no more hope. I have no more future. There is an electric chair not far from here. And sooner or later, they're going to strap me into it and they're going to kill me. Well, there's a church nearby, a lot like Parkview. And they read in the papers about this guy, Billy Moore, arrested for capital murder. And so they sent a couple of the members of the church over to the jail to talk to Billy Moore. And they went in and they began to tell him about the God of grace. And they said, Billy, God is willing to give you a fresh start and to give you a new chance at life. (laughs) And Billy's looking at him and he's dumbfounded. He said, what are you talking about, man? I have no future. I'm all out of fresh starts. I broke into a guy's trailer and shot him dead in the commission of a burglary. They're going to kill me in the electric chair. It is too late for me. But that couple said, Billy, look, I'm telling you, God loves you. He wants to adopt you as his son. He wants to forgive you. He wants to transform you. And Billy, I don't know how he'd do it. I don't know. I'm not God. But I'm just telling you, Billy, if you allow him to transform your life, he will use your life in ways that you never could have imagined. And Billy Moore heard those words. But he also saw the grace in the love of that couple. And he said later, he said, nobody had ever told me before that Jesus loves me and died for me. He said it was a love I could feel. It was a love I wanted. It was a love that I needed. 
And so Billy Moore, as broken and as hopeless of an individual as you will ever meet, got on his knees in his cell and opened his life up to the God of grace. And then that Christian couple baptized him in a rusty old bathtub there in the jail. And God began to change the life of Billy Moore. He went into court and he said, I got to be honest with you because it's true. I killed this man in the course of this burglary. And they said, yes, Billy, we're quite aware of that. And we find you guilty of capital murder and we sentence you to die in the electric chair. Well, it took 16 years for his case to wind its way through the courts before he would be executed. And in those 16 years, Billy Moore opened his life up to God more and more and more. And his life changed in radical ways. He became a model prisoner on death row. In fact, the the, um, guards had a nickname for Billy. They called him the Peacemaker. Because when Billy Moore first came to death row, it was a place of despair, a place of violence, a place of hatred. But when Billy Moore came, he led all the other inmates to faith in Jesus Christ. He led the guards to faith in Jesus Christ. And the whole tenor of death row changed to a place of hope, to a place of redemption. And it was just transformed. In fact, his um, um, education about the Bible, grew and grew. He took 32 correspondence courses from a Bible college on God. And he became such an effective counselor that local churches, when they had kids who would get in trouble, teenagers who were on a wayward path, they would send them to death row to be counseled by Billy Moore. I mean, he had such an impact. And and, and it started me thinking, you know, if God can take a man in a cage like Billy Moore, and yet use his life to have an eternal impact on all these other inmates, on all these guards, and all these kids who came to him. If God can take a man in a cage and use him to make a difference that way, think what he can do in your life and in your family and in your community and in your state and in your nation and in this world. How might he use us to make a difference for him? If he can do it with Billy, he can do it with you. Well, August of 1990 came, and his case came back from the U.S. Supreme Court, affirmed his guilty conviction, affirmed his death sentence, confirmed, and the hours started ticking down to August 22nd when they would execute him. And they moved Billy to the holding cell next to the electric chair, and they shaved his head and the right calf of his leg where they would attach the electrodes to kill him. And the hours were ticking down to when he would be killed. And his lawyers would call him. And I was curious. I I talked to his lawyers. I said, what was that like to talk to a man who was about to die? And they said to me, Lee, it was the oddest thing. We called Billy Moore with the intention of consoling him, but it was Billy Moore who was consoling us. He would say things like, are you guys okay? You're going to get through this all right? Are you coping with this? Why? Because Billy Moore was not afraid to die. Because Billy Moore knew if God loves me so much that he forgives my sin, that he adopts me as his son, that he was willing to transform my life, 
that he was willing to use me for his glory? If all of that is true of God, then I can trust that God to my eternity. I can trust that when I close my eyes for the last time in this world and I open them in the next, God will be there with me. And so the hours tick down and then something unprecedented took place. I mean, so unprecedented, it became a front-page article in the next day in the New York Times. So unprecedented that I've searched American jurisprudence. I cannot find any similar case ever in the United States of America. The parole and pardon board in the state of Georgia had heard stories about this man on death row who'd been such a positive influence, whose life had been so radically transformed by God, and they decided to hold an emergency hearing. As the minutes ticked down to when he would be executed, they hold an emergency hearing. Guess who came to the hearing? The relatives of the victim murdered by Billy Moore. And they begged them to spare the life of Billy. They said, many years ago, Billy asked for our forgiveness, and we gave it to him. They said, how could we not forgive Billy if God already has? The Atlantic Journal wrote, an editorial in which they call Billy Moore a saintly figure. Mother Teresa called the board from India and her advice was just do what Jesus would do. Now the board had some options. They could have allowed justice to take its course. What is justice? Justice is getting what we deserve. Billy murdered a man. He deserved under the justice system, to die. That would have been justice. And the board, on the other hand, could have had mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. They could have said, Billy, we're going to commute your death sentence and and make it life in prison. We're not going to execute you. They could have done that, but they didn't do either of those things. You know what they did? They looked out at this forgiven, transformed human being, and they said, in effect, we're going to show you grace. Grace goes beyond mercy. What they did is not only did they cancel the death penalty against Billy Moore, but they set the machinery in motion for Billy to be released and set free. The first time in American history I can find where a confessed, convicted, death row inmate was set free because of the way that God had changed his life. And when they announced that decision, guess what happened in the room? It just erupted with everyone singing spontaneously, amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Billy Moore. I mean, what else can people sing in a moment like that but the anthem of forgiven people? And so that, I think, is just a small taste of what the grace of God is like. It is undeserved forgiveness. It is unmerited favor. It is outrageous compassion. It is incredible clemency. And can I tell you where Billy Moore is right now? Where he is every Sunday. He's an ordained minister now of the gospel of Jesus Christ, serving the God of grace. And he's part of a church in a little community in Georgia between two public housing projects where there's a lot of poverty, a lot of fatherless families. And he is known as a great man of compassion and prayer. And his ministry is to the young teenagers in that neighborhood have been told, you don't matter, you don't have a future, you don't have a family, and you don't have hope. 
That's what the society has told them. But Billy Moore says, no, 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 that is not true. Let me tell you about the God of grace. He loves you. He wants to adopt you. He wants to transform you. And he wants to use your life in ways that you could never have imagined. And so Billy and I become friends. And so one day I remember I was at his house down in Georgia and we were drinking sweet tea, as they call it down there. And I said to him, I said, Billy, it's just the two of us. Nobody else is here. So you can be totally honest with me. Billy, I, I just want you to answer a question. He said, what, Lee? I said, what is the real source of this radical transformation in your life? It really was the prison rehabilitation system, wasn't it? And he laughed. He said, Ali, it wasn't that. I said, okay, it was Prozac, wasn't it? Wasn't that really it? He said, no, it wasn't that. I said, it was transcendental meditation or a 12-step group. Wasn't that something like that? He said, no. I said, it was the psychological counseling they gave you, wasn't it? I said, Bill, he said, Lee, he said, you know it wasn't any of those things. I said, Billy, I know it wasn't, but I want to hear you say it. And so Billy Moore looked at me and he said, Lee, plain and simple, it was Jesus Christ. He said, these are his words. He said, he changed me in ways I could never have changed myself. He gave me a reason to live. He helped me do the right thing. He gave me a heart for others and he saved my soul. And I thought, you know, aren't those the four exact things that we all are looking for in life? Listen to those things. He gave me a reason to live. Aren't we looking for a reason to live that goes beyond eating and drinking and sleeping and getting up and going to work in the morning? Don't we all long for a profound, eternal reason to live? He helped me do the right thing. How many times do we do something and we know it's wrong before we do it and we do it anyway? Don't we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us walk the right path that's healthy for us and for others? And then he said, he gave me a heart for others. How many times do we, do we encounter another person and we see them more of a problem to be solved than a person to be loved? And then he said, he saved my soul. Isn't that ultimately what we long for? to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be transformed, to be used by the God of grace. Well, let me tell you something. If God can forgive a guy like Billy Moore, a guy who committed capital murder, then what in the world have you done in your life that is worse than that? You know what I'm saying? My gosh, what possibly could you have done that is worse than what Billy Moore did? And yet God forgave him, and guess what? He will forgive you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if God will change a guy like Billy Moore, he will change you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, the theme verse from my new book, The, uh, uh, the Case for Grace. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Friends, if you ask me about the God of grace, those are the stories I would tell you. And then I would say this to you. Do you feel a window of spiritual opportunity opening? Do you sense that this God 
is someone who you want to meet, who you want to encounter, whose grace you want to appropriate. If you feel drawn toward him, then for whatever you do, don't let that window slide shut. Let the grace of God shine through it into your soul. So a woman last night who her friend had invited her so many times to come to Parkview and she never would come, but she came for the first time last night and she heard about the God of grace and she told me later in tears, she said, I wasn't going to let that window slide shut anymore. And she opened her heart to God last night and it was so great to see her and her best friend laughing and crying at the same time. Friends, don't let the window slide shut. If you want to fling it open and allow the grace of God to fill your soul, let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. If you want to take that step, just in your heart, just right now, say, Lord Jesus, I want your grace in my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for wanting to adopt me. Thank you for being willing to change me. Thank you for giving me a purpose for living. I confess to you that I am a sinner. And I want to turn from that. And I want to receive this free gift of your grace that you purchased for me on the cross. Thank you for loving me so much that you died so that we could be reconciled in this world and the world to come. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we think back again to Luke 15 where it says that a party breaks out in heaven every time a sinner repents and receives grace through your Son. So we celebrate the woman last night, people here today who've taken that step. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the opportunities that it gives us to serve you in radical ways. We thank you for those that have said, I'm going to trust you, God, and take the step that I feel you've been calling me to take for a long time, whether it's a missions trip or giving or serving, whatever it is. We thank you for the steps that they've taken. We pray for your blessing on everyone here. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.